In this episode, we speak with Rob Gerzeev, CEO and co-founder of SciCognito, a cybersecurity company that enables customers to take full control over their attack surface by uncovering and eliminating critical security risks. SciCognito's investors include Excel, Lightspeed, Sorensen, and the Wesley Group, among others. Previously, Rob served as head of offensive security for C4, where he built an intelligence gathering platform for government agencies. He began his career with the Israeli Intelligence Corps, where he rose the CTO of the product department. We hope you enjoy the show. Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. What I'd love to do is kick off with a little bit of background on yourself and Psychognito, and then we'll chat from there. Sounds good. I'm the CEO and co-founder of the company. We started about four and a half years ago with the mission to help security teams with maybe their number one challenge today, which is understanding, A, how attackers, their adversaries actually see their attack surface, but much more importantly, understand what's the attacker's path of least resistance into their networks and data. What are the very few handful of critical attack vectors usually related to unknown, unmanaged assets, networks, cloud instances, which has become even a bigger problem now with COVID and work from home, and focus their efforts where it matters, in that sense, where attackers do. So that's in short about the company. In terms of actually maybe the the next topic could, could be how we got to this point and why are we doing it? So many of us have started to do things in what is called in in the cybersecurity jargon, reconnaissance, very early in our life. 14, in my case, many of us were fortunate to also do interesting things with that. I was fortunate to join the 8200 Elite Intelligence Unit in Israel when I was 18, when this domain took off and grew massively at the time. And let's just say that this kind of scenario where you have targets like, say, ISIS, here is an interesting learning. Those organizations in those scenarios don't cooperate with you. (laughs) So you need to be really good at doing what you need to do. And what we learned was if attackers can find that path of least resistance, without that cooperation from the other side, then defenders can benefit from that too. (laughs) So that was the key learning, if you will, that led us to building the company and a little bit of background. Yeah, that's very helpful. You know, to many listening in, they may not be specialists in cybersecurity. We obviously know it's a big area of software. A lot of capital has been and will continue to go into cybersecurity. It can be a daunting space to comprehend. How do you fit within the broader cybersecurity landscape? I mean, you you talked about specifics about what you do. How do you kind of position your company in the broad landscape of cybersecurity? Yeah, that's a great question. So for the most part, and the easiest way to think about it is we're the fastest growing attack surface management company a term that Gartner recently, external tax service management, started to use like six months ago. And we help companies like organizations and companies like the Department of Homeland Security, 
British Petroleum, Colgate, Tesco, and many others in getting visibility, but also knowledge on what's exposed, but then understanding where the risks are and where are these major security gaps in areas they don't even understand or know. So that's in terms of the category. One of the reasons there is a huge expansion and growth in this area of the market is, according to top analysts, more than 50% of the breaches right now are actually attributed to unknown and unmanaged assets. So that means you can invest, and we're seeing organizations that invest hundreds of millions of dollars on firewalls and endpoint and cloud security and that kind of stuff. But then they're likely to be breached and some of them are breached because of networks or cloud instances that they don't even know about or don't have their agents deployed on. And so if attackers are the entity that generates the risk, it only makes sense to get their perspective on your own organization. Just because you believe you're secure doesn't mean that you really are. And I can tell you that even the CISO of one of the big four consulting companies, these guys sell security solutions for billions of dollars for 70% of the Fortune 500 companies. He shared that he knows they're not testing more 50% of their known attack surface and they're seeing new security blind spots every single week. Mm-hmm. So it's this combination of not even knowing about the attack surface, but then not having scalable risk assessment capabilities. And our platform solves both. So it's not really just external attack surface management, but also automated, quote unquote, external pen testing or security testing, if you will, which solves what we call outside-in risk management. Mm-hmm. And is your platform best suited for certain sectors? You, you, you named a, a kind of a variety of clients you have now. Is consumer products a, an area that you're particularly focused on? Or is, that, is it just kind of broad-based, any Fortune 500? Yeah, I would say any global 2000 company should really care about outside-in risk management if they don't already. We also have smaller customers like large startups and medium-sized enterprises as customers. But I would say global 2000 companies have the biggest or the most pain around attack surface visibility, security testing coverage, as I just mentioned, and then reducing the amount of noise you're getting from all of these siloed scanners for the most part and being able to focus on 10 or 20 issues which is the only way to get to a mean time of remediation, quickly respond to risk within days or a week, so faster than attackers, rather than months, which is actually the industry average. One thing I'd like to, is kind of an aside, but for those in cybersecurity and that know about companies, it's no secret that many great cybersecurity companies come out of Israel or founded by Israelis. Can you tell us a little bit of background on why that is? (laughs) Sure. I think it's really a cultural thing where cybersecurity is a complex industry where unlike some other industries, the business problems that organizations and everyone should be solving are less obvious. For example, mean time to remediation we just talked about. 
it's clear that if it takes attackers a week or two to find vulnerable assets across the world, once a new vulnerability like Log4j is becoming known, it's clear that if you're in the months area, it will be breached within weeks or months. You may not know about it, but, but you're not in a great place. But as an industry, this industry is not proactively talking about such elements and the conversation, maybe it's because how the industry was built mostly by IT people and not so much by offensive security and people who have done offense. And so the conversation is mostly around architecture and buying technologies and adopting principles and concepts rather than here is the mission, here is the problem we need to solve, what's the most cost-effective way to solve it, which is usually how you have to think when you're in an intelligence agency or you know there is no marketing and sales and you really just need to solve complex problems. And so I think that in various organizations like the 8200 unit, but not only because there's no sales and marketing and there are no analysts, there are only complex problems to solve. You get more resources and quote-unquote success if you solve meaningful problems. So you are so laser-guided, finding the right problem, what problems are important to solve, and then how to do it versus finding easier targets that you can be really proud of solving, pounding your chest about, in other words, doing a lot of marketing about without actually solving critical problems. For example, some companies spent hundreds of millions of dollars on convincing the industry that if you're compliant or you do some forms of zero trust, you'll be fine. But that makes no sense. Recently, we were uh, reached out by a company that got bridged Fortune 100, 500 company, I'm sorry. And they said, we got compromised because of compromised credentials that were used against us, but we're using the best authentication, multi-factor authentication capability. How did that happen? And when we onboarded them to our SaaS platform, we learned that they were only deploying that technology at 300 out of the 600 authentication mechanisms they have. So again, 50% coverage. Mm -hmm. And so you can feel very good about building this architecture, but if you don't have the attacker's perspective or the risk-oriented perspective, it may not matter that much. Mm -hmm. You recently took in a fairly sizable round, and one of the things we like to talk about is investors. Tell us a little bit about how you made the decision to partner with the investors you chose. I know some of them are existing, but what were you looking for in an investor, and you know, what do you think has made for a good investor? That's a great question. I would say that from day one, and especially in the first few years, we knew that we know this domain extremely well. Yeah, let's just <laughs> put it as that. We know this domain extremely well. So we have a great vision. We can build the technology and in a way that really solves the problem and from a different approach. Excellent. We also knew what we don't know, which is how do you build a commercial company? How do you build a great go-to-market team? And we started this journey, you know, now we have 11 Fortune 100 customers, just four years since the seed round. But we knew literally 
I swear, zero CISOs, zero when we started the company because we only, we only been in the other side of the table. So I moved to the Bay Area about four and a half years ago when we just started and we built our network and knowledge about this from scratch. So Ken Elephant from Sorensen, RF Jen Mohammed from Lightspeed, Eric Wolford from Self Ventures, Dan Scheinman, who was a seed investor and a board member, have all invested very early in multi-billion dollar companies in cybersecurity and related industries. Even our Series C leader, Steve Wesley of the Wesley Group, was an early investor in Sentinel One. Others invested in companies like Netscope and the VCs invested in uh, CrowdStrike and Tenable and other related and great companies. So that was one of our top priorities, providing resources on go-to-market strategy, team building, and, and also folks with strong reputation so that customers know that we're not another company out of the 3,000, but we're probably doing something really meaningful if two of the top five enterprise software VCs, in my opinion, have invested in the company. Got it. So what I'm hearing is that the intros were very valuable to you know executives at, at various companies, but then also they have you know domain expertise and a halo effect. You know you're backed by notable names, and you're going to get more attention, and that's that's fantastic. Is there value beyond that? We try to you know kind of suss out the distinction between more the operational capabilities of growth equity investors versus you know, allocators. And it seems like you have a little bit of both. Yeah, absolutely. Dan Scheinman, seed investor and board member at our company, spent 15 or 20 years at Cisco on the M&A side, mm-hmm. legal and M&A side. And by the way, was a seed investor at Zoom and Sentinel One, Arista Networks and other great companies. Eric Wolford, our board member from Excel was employee number seven and president of Riverbed, mm-hmm. which got to a billion dollars in revenue within six years from day one. So these kind of folks both have seen and also <laughs> actively worked and, and created this kind of value. And yeah, I'm, I'm learning a lot from every conversation with them and some relevant folks in their networks. So that's extremely valuable, you know, compared with someone who knows the the market a little bit and knows numbers, which which is great too. But for us, we knew that these values will create a lot of value, which they did. You've accomplished some major milestones in a fairly short amount of time. What has been kind of the biggest challenge to being an entrepreneur of a fast-growing company? Yeah, I would say that the biggest challenge was, you know, how do you get to tripling your revenue the way we did last year in your first real growth year? How do you build a sales team that is really effective, both in the cybersecurity industry, where sale process have massively changed, and COVID and working from home massively changed these two? I think we've never met in person. 80 or 90% of our customers, even when we sold directly to them. And so building these processes, building the team, training the team, helping folks 
to evangelize and to explain why you cannot keep using the same 10, 20 years old tools you've been using all of this time to solve these critical problems, which in some cases, by the way, sound extremely logical, right? A CFO that manages the budget of just half the company would sound crazy. So why testing and knowing about just half of your attack surface is not quite extreme. How does that make sense? But apparently it is important to evangelize about it. So yeah, I think these are some major challenges, especially as a technical founding team. And I feel very fortunate that we were able to build a very strong go-to-market team of folks who have helped building multiple multi-billion dollar companies in this industry. Mm-hmm. We're coming up on time, but I like to ask end with a couple questions and more to the, I guess, personal side, quasi-professional. I'll start with the book. Has there been a book that you've read which has had a profound impact on you? Yeah. Principles by Ray Dalio mm-hmm. is amazing. It really makes you think about how do you want to lead people? How can you encourage critical thinking? And they've done it at such an extreme way that is so impressive so that you tell yourself, I don't have to be at 100 because that can also destroy some people and you need to get used to it. And that's culture you need to build over time. But how do I drive towards that? So that was an amazing book. And uh, last question is, what's your definition of good leadership? And is there someone that you think is a quintessential leader that you try to emulate? Leadership is a super interesting thing. For me, everything has to have a meaning. So first and foremost, a great leader finds a great mission. Why do we need to invest all of this time and energy in this thing? And ideally, that's something that is more meaningful than just making money. Ideally, that's also something that people care about, that is meaningful to others and has a long-term vision to it. It can't be something just for the next six or 24 months. And so a good leader finds an important mission and then builds an environment where talented and relevant people can help making a difference. And then in that environment, these people feel rewarded, appreciated, and more than anything else, maybe their ability to convert uh, time and energy into progress and, and value creation. And again, not just for themselves, but for the bigger community. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, we can leave out the second part, which was like, is there an example? Maybe there is an example of, isn't an example of that? I haven't found the perfect <laughs> figure yet, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> for better or for worse. But yeah, it's interesting to analyze different people. Yeah. Well, fantastic, Rob. Thank you so much for taking the time. You know, again, this was very helpful and uh, I know our audience will find this very insightful. Yeah, it was a pleasure, RJ. Pleasure to be here. 